Hey folks, coming in hot with a little ad uh, for myself in my upcoming book. If you like this podcast, you are definitely going to like the book I wrote based on it. Unruly Figures, 20 Tales of Rebels, Rule Breakers, and Revolutionaries covers several people that I've never covered on the podcast. From queens of piracy in the Mediterranean to rebellious artists in New York to aboriginal resistance leaders in Tasmania, this book is full of rebellious folks you may have never heard of. It comes out wherever books are sold on March 5th. Pre-order it now. Link is in the show notes. Hey everyone, welcome to Unruly Figures, the podcast that celebrates history's greatest rule breakers. I'm your host, Valerie Clark, and today I'm going to be covering two siblings whose names you may have never heard before, Sophie and Hans Scholl. While they were studying at the University of Munich in the early 1940s, Hans and Sophie were part of the central group of the White Rose Resistance. Together with other students and a few professors, they published leaflets pleading with Germans to turn their backs on Hitler. They are a rare and barely well-documented story of resistance against the Nazis from within Germany, and I'm really excited to tell their story. Before we get into it, I just wanted to let you know that this is going to be the last episode of season one of the podcast. I'm going to be taking August and a lot of September off to finish writing the Unruly Figures book and to get a little downtime in. But I'll be back in late September for season two, no worries. Uh, If you're a paying subscriber on Substack, you'll get behind-the-scenes glimpses even while I'm between seasons. To become a paying subscriber and start getting your exclusive Unruly Figures content, head over to unrulyfigures.substack.com. That's U-N-R-U-L-Y-F-I-G-U-R-E-S dot S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. You'll get ad-free episodes, a full transcript from each episode, a bibliography of my research, photos of everyone I'm covering, discussion threads, behind-the-scenes peaks, so much. So check it out. Alright, let's hop back in time. I'm covering two people today, which is, it's a little tricky, especially because I think Sophie is more often remembered in the public consciousness, um, but Hans had a really important role to play in their work too. Um, In fact, when I started doing this episode, I was only going to cover Sophie, and then the more I read about Hans, the more I thought he deserved to be in this story as well. So hopefully this won't be too confusing. Fortunately, they're siblings, so early childhood is similar to both, and and they were always really close, so um, hopefully I won't be trying to tell like two different stories too often, okay? Um, So Hans Fritz Scholl was born on September 22nd, 1918 to parents Robert and Magdalena Scholl. He was the second child in the family, preceded only by his older sister Inga. Sophia Magdalena Scholl was born on May 9th, 1921. She was the fourth of six children. Um, Between her and Hans was their sister Elizabeth. Their father, Robert, was the mayor of Forstenberg, a town in central Germany. If you were to draw, like, a triangle between Stuttgart, Frankfurt, and Nuremberg, Forstenberg is, like, right in the center of that triangle. Um, Robert was a liberal and a pacifist who had not served in World War I and was vocally against Hitler. All of this brought the family under suspicion a few times. It seems like Magdalena, their mother, was a homemaker. Um, I don't see any record indicating that she took in any other work, like laundry or tailoring, though they did occasionally have like borders during World War I. To be honest, there's not a ton of documentation about their youth. The family was apparently upper middle class, if not wealthy. Um, I got the impression that they were wealthy from Hans's letters, which I read in the collection At the Heart of the White Rose, edited by Inga Jeans. Something about the casual way he talks about money makes it seem to me like the family lived very comfortably. 
Sophie, in her letters, talks less about money, but she does make it clear that every time the children had time off from school, the family traveled somewhere. Usually it was within Germany, but travel and lodging for eight people is never cheap, so I imagine they had good financial resources. Finally, in the first interrogation of Sophie by the Gestapo, it's noted that she was receiving about 150 marks per month in support from her parents, which was a pretty decent amount. According to a table I found, the average wage of a blue-collar worker in Germany in 1943 would have been around 194 marks per month. So if her parents could spare almost a full monthly salary to support her, clearly they weren't struggling financially. Uh, Inge Jans in her, wrote in her introduction to their letters that the family was, quote, deeply humane if not especially religious. In a letter home, Hans would later reminisce that, quote, few people can look back on such a fine, proud boyhood. The family was also balancing various hobbies and interests like music, art, literature, and spending time outdoors. Sophie and Hans both refer to times in the mountains in their letters. Sophie is especially rhapsodic about scenery in her letters. At some point, she writes to her father, quote, The sight of the mountains' quiet majesty and beauty makes the reasons people advance for their disastrous doings seem ludicrous and insane. The siblings were all close in age and also very bonded to one another. Even when Hans, Sophie, and later their younger sibling Werner moved out uh, for their various compulsory services to the Third Reich, they all communicated pretty frequently via letters. When Hans and Sophie had time off, they usually voluntarily went home, so their home life must have been a happy one. In 1932, their father was no longer mayor of Forschenberg, so the family moved to Ulm, where they lived for the rest of Sophie's and Hans' lives. As they grew into their teens and 20s, they both grew into exceedingly good-looking people. In photos of the two, Hans is always clean-cut, with like a strong jaw and great hair. Sophie usually has a very fashionable haircut and the kind of smile that really like lights up a room. Um, they were both quite popular and beloved by pretty much everyone that met them, at least it seems. On April 15, 1933, Hans joined the Hitler Youth against his father's wishes. He was 15 at the time, so it makes sense that he would join. Group membership in these like Nazi youth groups was quite common, and within the group there would be, quote, a significant amount of brainwashing and manipulation that would take place to get the children to think in the Nazi way. Hans showed outstanding leadership potential in the Hitler Youth and became a local group leader. In January 1934, Sophie joined the League of German Girls. In, the, in that league, Sophie would have been prepared for a life of keeping house, basically. She would have been taught how to cook and how to raise a family. Um, she also did so well in that group that she also became a local leader of the League. She was especially known for being well-behaved and quite eloquent. Um, she remained a member until 1941. In 1937, uh, Sophie met Fritz Hartnagel, who is usually referred to as her longtime boyfriend in biographies. Um, he was four years older than her, so about Hans's age. He was enlisted in the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, and he was already kind of a budding officer by the time they met. I think calling him her boyfriend is oversimplifying their relationship, though. I, I don't know that Sophie and Fritz ever really fully figured out their relationship. It's clear from Sophie's letters that she cares very deeply about him, but she also occasionally seems very confused about whether or not they're on the same page or if they're making a mistake. For instance, in May 1938, she wrote to him, quote, Are you ever irritated by the tripe I write? You're four years older, four years smarter, four years better, four years worse, and four years more experienced than me. Am I aiming too high? End quote. That said, in the summer of 1939, the two planned to go on a trip to Yugoslavia together, which was canceled by a ban on foreign travel by young people. 
Instead, they went to, and I'm not going to pronounce this right. In fact, I'm probably going to get a lot of the German pronunciations in here wrong, but I'm going to do my best. Um, instead, they went to Heilengafefen, then um, to the North Sea, and finally to Warpsfeed, an artist colony. This is clearly just a trip for the two of them. Later on, she wrote to him, quote, I often think of you. Summer seems ages ago. I can hardly believe we spent it together. Remember how we used to sit in that beach chair at Heilengafefen? Doesn't it make you laugh? Or her mother may not have been super comfortable with this trip, which Sophie alludes to in another letter to Fritz in October 1939, which is maybe more evidence that their relationship was romantic and sexual by this point. Um, I can see any mom kind of worrying about her 18-year-old daughter going on vacation with a boy. But there's also long gaps where they're not writing. At some point, Sophie mentions in her diary that she has a crush on Alexander Schmorl. I mean, sure, a girl can be in a relationship with one person and have feelings for someone else. Obviously, that happens. Um, but she doesn't even mention Fritz in the same diary entry, which strikes me as odd if this very ethical girl is, like, having some kind of emotional affair, you know? And let's be clear, the entire time they knew each other, Fritz was deployed on the front lines and Sophie was traveling around a lot because of her own compulsory service. So, I mean, it's hard today to build a solid relationship when you're 16 and it's long distance from day one. Imagine trying to do it when you're relying on wartime letters in the 1930s. It's nice to think that Sophie had a great love of her short life, and maybe that's how she felt about Fritz, but again, I don't know that boyfriend is a super accurate definition for their relationship, and certainly not a long-term one. In 1937, Hans finished secondary school and was sent to Göppingen camp in, to complete his compulsory six months of service in the state labor service. In October of the same year, he was drafted into the German military. He loved riding horses, so he applied to join the cavalry and was accepted into it. Despite their budding leadership skills, both the Scholl siblings started to become very disillusioned with the Nazi party. Their father, who had never wavered from his outspoken position against Hitler, probably had a big part in this. However, their first interactions with the Gestapo in the fall of 1937 also certainly radicalized the whole family against the Nazis. You see, sometime in the mid-1930s, Hans had joined a branch of the German youth group usually referred to as DJ-111, which is an abbreviation for Deutschjugendschaft, 1st November, the date which the branch of the group was formed. It was part of a larger cultural youth movement called Von der Vogel. It focused on connecting with nature and art and poetry. It has very big, like, capital R romantic vibes. At the same time, it was considered compatible with the Hitler youth group. It would lead, however, to disillusionment with the Nazis. In her first interrogation in 1943, Sophie gives this following reasons for why she left the League of German Girls. Quote, The reasons behind my philosophical alienation from the League of German Girls, and therefore the NSDAP, beginning around 1938, have as primary basis the fact that my sister Inga and my brothers Hans and Werner were arrested in the autumn of 1938 by officials of the secret state police because of so-called Bundish activities. They were kept in custody for several days or weeks. I am still of the opinion even now that the proceedings against us as well as other children in Ulm were completely unjustified. My brother Werner belonged to a Bundish group between 1932-1943, that's a mistake, when he was 10 to 12 years old. That was probably the reason behind the subsequent proceedings against us. I would like to add as an additional and, in the end, the most important reason for my antipathy to the movement, I perceive the intellectual freedom of people to be limited in such a matter as contradicts everything inside of me. In summary, I would like to state that I personally would like to have nothing to do with National Socialism." End quote. 
Sophie uses the word Bundish to describe this group. Um, the editor of the database where I read these transcripts clarifies that, quote, Bundisha activities were those youth activities outside the purview of the Hitler Youth Organization. These did not have to be subversive to be illegal. Boy Scouts and related organizations were considered Bundisha as well. The German youth movement group that Hans had been a part of had been perfectly legal when he joined. It actually only became illegal later. However, there's also like an addendum published by Judd Newborn to his book, Sophie Scholl and the White Rose, and he mentions that, quote, elements of homoeroticism, if not actual homosexuality, were fundamental to some of these groups, possibly including Hans, or Hans's group. Um, in 1935, six-year-old Hans began a relationship with a boy a year younger than him, Rolf Futterneck. They'd been friends for a while and were camping together with the group whenever the relationship shifted. Apparently, Hans struggled with these feelings at first, but eventually, quote, found that he couldn't resist them. Rolf and Hans were together for about a year, and after they broke up, they remained pretty good friends. It was in the late fall of 1937 that the Gestapo began cracking down on these aforementioned Bundisch groups. Teens across Germany were arrested and questioned. Four of the Scholl children were picked up in this sweep, Hans, Sophie, Inga, and Werner, as Sophie kind of mentioned in, in her testimony I, I quoted a minute ago. Um, Sophie was released the same day, but Hans, who was subject to military tribunal instead of civil authorities, was held in a detention cell at the Gestapo headquarters for weeks. His commanding officer spoke up for him, actually begging the Gestapo to hurry up, basically, because Hans was needed back with the cavalry. Hans was charged with subversive activities, but he was also charged under paragraph 175 of the German Criminal Code, which had recently been expanded to make it easier to prosecute men who participated in homosexual acts. He was accused of having at least one sexual relationship with another boy. It was later revealed that Rolf had admitted to it in a previous interrogation. In his trial, Hans admitted to the relationship and also tried desperately to protect Rolf. Hans said, quote, I can only justify my actions on the basis of the great love I felt for Rolf. I can hardly comprehend my behavior today. Hans described the relationship as, quote, an overpowering love that required some means of relief. He also argued that the Hitler Youth had forbade friendships between boys and girls, leading hormonal teenagers to have only access to same-sex relationships. He also claimed that he hadn't even known that same-sex relationships were illegal when he and Rolf were involved. Basically throwing himself on his sword, Hans tried to claim that the relationship wasn't consensual. He says, to, he says, quote, To some extent, I was in a position of authority over Rolf, and he felt obliged to submit, end quote. Everyone, even the Gestapo, thought this was a ridiculous claim. They all clearly saw that Hans was just trying to protect Rolf. And Rolf had said on numerous occasions, both during his interrogations and later after the war, that the relationship was completely consensual. Judge Hermann Korst um, ended up dismissing all charges against Hans. He saw the continuation of Hans's work with the youth group as, quote, youthful exuberance and believed him to be simply a headstrong young man. The relationship with Rolf was passed off as, quote, a youthful failing. Hans left the courtroom with a clean record, but was deeply traumatized by the ordeal. The whole family, in fact, was really shaken. Robert Scholl is reported as saying, quote, if those bastards hurt my children in any way, I'll go to Berlin and shoot him. Him, of course, being Hitler. Unfortunately, the Scholl's family friend Ernest Rieden was not so lucky. He was slightly older than Hans and Rolf, and the Gestapo ended up blaming Rieden for basically being a bad influence. It's unclear whether Rieden had had a romantic or sexual relationship with Hans. Some people seem to think that Rieden definitely tried to initiate one with Hans's younger brother, Werner, but it didn't work out for whatever reason. 
Reading was deported to a concentration camp as a result of this. He apparently was released at some point, though, because he was killed in action several years later as a sergeant major. As with so many queer folks throughout history, this story of Hans's attraction to men is often suppressed in official narratives. Not many sources contain allusions to it, probably because the very first book written about the White Rose, which was written by their sister Inga Scholl in 1952, really suppressed this narrative of homosexuality. In that book, and in all subsequent ones, she ended up writing several books about the White Rose, Inga always minimized this first trial and the role that standing up for sexual minorities played in the formation of the White Rose. In fact, the collection of letters I read makes no allusion to this relationship, even though the letters cover Hans's time in prison in the 1930s. In addition to being translated into English, the letters are heavily edited, often with large swaths cut out of them. This period of 1937, for instance, is only barely referred to. In a letter to his mother, Hans writes of his group DJ111, Quote, we certainly had a boyhood worthy of the name, and that's my dearest wish, that in spite of all the difficulties and all the mudslinging, this sentiment should live on in the hearts of my former comrades. Quote, no mention of what the mudslinging was, it's completely taken out of context. In a letter dated April 25th, 1938, Hans wrote, quote, I received the indictment today. Application is being made to put Ernst Rieden on trial and remand him in custody. I'm not afraid of going on trial. Even if I can't justify myself in open court, I can justify myself to myself. Again, so much is being cut out of this, that's not even the full letter, it's just the editor summarizing the letter's contents. In another letter that Hans wrote to Otto Eicher in December 1941, he wrote, quote, The best thing of all would be if you yourself... And then there's, well, who knows how much cut out. It just ends mid-sentence. Just little ellipses to indicate that something's missing. The next included line is, quote, Is it wrong to cling to such hopes? Which is certainly suggestive, but it ultimately means nothing. You know, I studied queer history in grad school, and this shit happens all the time. People suppress this narrative like Inga did because they think they're protecting the reputations of their loved ones or a historical figure that they respect, so they cut things out that might quote-unquote damage them. But all it does is reduce their full humanity. As a historian and as a person, I find this so frustrating. And it obviously presents a problem with telling the full story, like, did Hans and Otto have a romantic or sexual relationship? Couldn't tell you, based on these letters. Was standing up against the Third Reich's anti-homosexuality policies a driving force for the White Rose? I don't know. There's circumstantial evidence to suggest it was. But unless you speak German and can get into the archives in Germany, there's no way for us to know. This stuff keeps me awake at night. <laughs> but um, okay, I will step off my soapbox. In 1938, Hans was deep into his military service. His squadron was training near Stetten, and wherever he and whenever he could go um, hiking in the Danube Valley and swim, he would. He wrote to his sister Inga on June 27, 1938, quote, I keep a rosebud in my breast pocket. I need that little flower because it's the other side of the coin, far removed from soldiering, but not at odds with a soldierly frame of mind. You should always carry a little secret around with you, especially when you're with comrades like mine, end quote. In November, he completed his basic military service and went to an army medical corps course in Tübingen in order to study medicine. He successfully completed this qualification stage and began studying medicine in Munich at Ludwig Maximilian University in summer 1939. Later that summer, in his private diary, Hans writes, quote, I feel no desire for heroism in war. What I seek is purification. 
I want all the shadows to melt away from me. I'm searching for myself, just myself, because this much I do know. I'll only find the truth inside me. We were glad at first that war had finally broken out. It's bound to bring release from the yoke, a yoke Germany has brought upon itself. End quote. While Hans likes his fellow soldiers, it's clear from his diary that he doesn't believe in the war, nor does he feel good about it. He constantly tried to get out of active service, pleading for his education in medicine. Sophie usually gets the credit as the introspective artistic one, but Hans's diary entries are really lovely too. In fall 1939, he wrote, quote, A year ago, I remarked to Lisa that forests show off in the fall because they know they'll soon be rearing their bare black branches into the cold winter sky. That's untrue. Vanity is foreign to nature. Human beings merely credit her with it. Human beings who view the world and make inferences from their own standpoint. End quote. In March 1940, Hans was drafted into a Munich-based students' company. They made a brief trip to the Western Front in April, or when the Western military campaign began in earnest on May 10, 1940, Hans's unit was given orders to go to France, where Hans worked in a military hospital alongside Red Cross doctors and nurses. He wrote home about loving Paris, but being very frustrated by the terms of his presence there. He complained that there wasn't a single person he could have an intelligent conversation with, and he took issue with the commandeering of personal houses for the German military. What am I, a thief or a self-respecting human being? You've no idea the looting that goes on, he wrote. In spring 1940, Sophie also graduated from secondary school. Every student had to work for the state labor service, as Hans had, for about six months if they wanted to attend university. But Sophie really didn't want to do that. She was already pretty disillusioned against helping the government at this point. She applied to become a kindergarten teacher instead, hoping that would be like a way to circumvent this, um, this labor service. In May 1940, Sophie began her course at the Froebel Institute in Ulm. This was her training to become a kindergarten teacher, and it probably felt a lot like being in school. It was a lot of learning the fundamentals of teaching. Meanwhile, Fritz Hartnagel's unit was sent to invade the Netherlands on May 10th, which had her incredibly worried. She wrote to him a week later, saying, quote, I was 19 a week ago today. Remember how we rounded off the day? That's what's been happening to you since then. I'm on tender hooks waiting for news of you. She continues a few paragraphs later, quote, There are things I'd have liked to say and tell you that I can't put down on paper. Our ideas are so different, I sometimes wonder if it's really so unimportant when it ought to be the basis of any relationship. But all this must be shelved for now. It's really, it really is unimportant at present, because what you and I need now is love, not friendship and companionship. We'll keep things between us that way till we can be by ourselves again, end quote. Yet, a year later, Sophie wrote to Fritz, quote, In my state of slight exhaustion, I'm looking for a prop. I know I can depend on you and that you love me. That's why we needn't tie one another down. I can tell you I'm growing fond of you all over again, in a different way. This is what I was saying earlier, that it doesn't seem like they were ever fully on the same page. Um... At this point, Sophie began to practice passive resistance. She read the theological writings of a Catholic bishop and outspoken critic of the Nazi regime, August von Galen. She actually managed to reprint the sermon and distribute it at the University of Munich, though I have truly no idea how. It isn't super subtle. Um, in fact, religion ended up playing a large part of resistance for both Sophie and Hans, which is interesting because they weren't raised in a religious home, but they both turned toward Christian theology for the basis of their argument against Hitler. 
Scholar Jacob Nab realized in Sophie's letters to Fritz that she had probably given him two volumes of sermons by Cardinal John Henry Newman when he was deployed to the Eastern Front. Newman was key for the development of a theology of conscience, which argues both that humans are capable of independent thought, but that also they have a responsibility to look toward God and the church, both to understand truth writ large and for proper behavior in response to that freedom. Newman famously wrote, quote, Conscience has rights because it has duties. I read some of what Newman wrote, and it's a kind of dense and a difficult theology to understand unless you're used to these kinds of arguments, which tells me a lot about how smart Sophie and her friends were. Uh, theology of conscience would have a huge impact on them, and they discussed it with everyone they were close to. For instance, in summer and fall of 1940, Fritz and Sophie clearly are discussing the ethics of a military career and his being a soldier. She writes to him, quote, A soldier has to swear an oath, after all, so his job is to carry out his government's orders. Tomorrow he may have to comply with a view diametrically opposed to yesterday's. His profession is obedience. If he receives an order, he has to carry it out, whether he considers it right or wrong. End quote. Later in life, Fritz, who survived the war, would call Sophie's letters the, quote, crucial contribution to the mental process through which he had to pass before he could acknowledge that the regime I served as a professional soldier was a criminal one, end quote. In addition to religion, Hans and his friends were very into debating Friedrich Nietzsche. They were especially interested in three specific assertions from Nietzsche. One, that friendship as a, um, friendship as a human virtue. Two, the Ubermensch whose duty was to resist, quote, de-individualizing tendencies in the age of the herd. And three, Nietzsche's idea that God is dead. They weren't seeing this last one as atheistically, which is maybe not what Nietzsche meant anyway, but instead saw it as, quote, a prediction that God would die in a church that backed an inhuman regime, end quote. In October 1940, Hans was released from service and allowed to return to Munich to continue his studies. There, he met Alexander Schmorl, and they became very close friends. Alexander was Russian by birth, but had immigrated to Germany when he was quite young and had become a citizen. Nevertheless, he always identified more as Russian and considered it his spiritual home. When he was ordered to swear an oath of personal allegiance to Hitler, Schmorl, quote, asked to be exempted and discharged from the army. His request was denied. An artistically gifted and sensitive young man whose extreme desire for freedom and independence was incompatible with the discipline and uniformity of military life, he became an undisguised opponent of the Nazi regime." End quote. He was soon inviting Hans to his father's literary soirees. Schmorl Sr. was equally an opponent of the regime and regularly invited over other dissenters for spiritual relaxation, as they called it. At these evening parties, Hans met Christoph Probst, who he quickly became friends with also. Together, the three of them would end up forming central figures of the White Rose. Hans passed his prelims for the medical degree on mid-January 1941, which actually made him worried he'd be recalled to the front lines. The German military was constantly in need of capable doctors and nurses, and Hans had gained a lot of useful experience while in France. It's worth noting that Hans was dating women as well at this point in his life. In a letter to his parents written while he was in Paris in 1940, he slyly says, quote, It's marvelous the way most of the women folk behave toward German soldiers, end quote. Uh, then during the early months of 1941, he started to write an increasing amount of letters to Rose Nigel, who he'd known for a long time. He and her brother had both been in DJ 111 and their families were quite close. 
However, somewhat like Sophie's relationship with Fritz, I think calling them a couple would be going too far. Hans is constantly coming up with excuses for why he doesn't write or visit Rose and why their relationship isn't better. In summer 1941, he writes to her, We're too far apart. That's our trouble. It's impossible to cram long, long weeks of living into the narrow confines of a letter. End quote. I also, and it's a little off topic, but I, I have to include this. And it, it just made me laugh because, man, some things never change. Um, in the same letter where he le- laments their separation, Hans clearly is answering some question Rose has asked him about his astrological birth chart. Uh, he writes, quote, I was born on September 22nd, 1918 under the sign of Virgo. I don't know myself whether my arrival in the world was a good or a bad one. The fact that I'm alive is a reality and reality is the sole truth. End quote. I was like, I have to laugh a little imagining poor Rose like consulting an astrologer in like 1941 to figure out if she and Hans were compatible. Um, I just imagine that she's trying to figure out whether or not she should wait for him to get his act together, which I and several of my friends have all done with men we were interested in. Time change, people don't. Hans also seems to be suffering from depression or maybe like a little bit of post-traumatic stress after he returns from the Western Front. He seems to be describing himself when he writes to Rose, quote, a little human being huddled up, crushed by his own misery, cowers in the darkness, thinking, brooding, realizing that it's futile, that he'll never make it. I can't weep, so I curse. A lot of it may be imagination, of course. The war may have distorted a lot of things in my brain, end quote. It's also through letters to Rose that we learn of another of Hans's little rebellious moves. He apparently hated living in the barracks, and so he and so he often rented a private room near wherever he was stationed, and he would like sneak out every night to sleep there. Apparently, this was common. Actually, um, in one letter to his parents, he wrote that only a third of the soldiers seemed to be sleeping in the barracks. The military caught on eventually, and everyone got in trouble for this. <laughs> In March 1941, Sophie passed her examination to be a kindergarten teacher. She started working at a nursery in Ulm. Then, just a few weeks later, she was drafted into the state labor service, despite hoping that she wouldn't be. That had, in fact, been the whole point of the kindergarten training, after all. She had a hard time fitting in where she was assigned. She shared a dormitory with ten girls and didn't like them at all. They were chatty and gossiped late into the night, and by this point, Sophie was spending her nights reading St. Augustine and Thomas Mann. Like, this studious religious girl was not a good fit with the rest of this group. In her diary, Sophie writes, quote, I would like very much to go to church, not the Protestant one where I listen critically to what the parson says, but the other one where I tolerate everything and have only to be open and receptive. But is that the right one? End quote. Sophie was really wrestling with like some deep religious questions and feelings during this time. Normally, she would have completed her time in the National Labor Service after six months, but in August 1941, all the girls at her camp were informed their service was being extended another six months. She was furious. She wrote to Hans, quote, I'm ready to contract any reasonably tolerable disease or do anything else that would spare me this fate. You must try to think of something, too. Uh, all she wanted was to join Hans at the University of Munich. Around 1941, both Sophie's and Hans' letters start to refer to their mother's illness. She was 60 by this point. She'd had her kids in her late 30s and early 40s. Her youngest son, Tilda, was born when Magdalena was 44. It's not clear from their letters what her illness is. It could have just 
be a combination of oldish age and stress. I wouldn't usually dare to call 60 old, but I think living through the Nazi regime would age anyone faster than usual. Also in 1941, their friend Otto Eicher encouraged their group of friends from Ulm to begin a private little publication titled Windblicht, meaning Storm Lantern with the goal of keeping them all kind of tied together even while they were separated by the war. Honestly, I think today we'd call it a zine. <laughs> uh, it included essays on like various theological sermons, reviews of books they were reading, illustrations, sometimes fiction. It seems like Otto would decide what everyone was going to write, then they'd all send it to Inga and Ulm to type and bind it all up, and then she'd send them out. I would love to see a copy of these. Sophie drew a cover for at least one issue. Um, I think they only prepared or only produced three or four altogether. Of course, I've seen zines with shorter runs than that, so I'm very impressed still. It was also Otto who introduced Hans and later Sophie to Karl Muth, who would become a huge influence on the White Rose members. He acted as a Socratic mentor for the group, guiding them toward recognition of National Socialism's quote, wholesale threat to individual morality and perversion of human values. Otto and Hans took care of Professor Muth in turns. In November 1941, Hans wrote to Otto, Professor Muth has asked for you several times. I think he's very much looking forward to a letter from you. I suspect that the real cause of his illness is psychological. The anti-Jewish measures in Germany and the occupied territories are preying on his mind." End quote. While Hans was in school, Sophie's extended service saw her sent to another kindergarten near the border with Switzerland. Her diary during this time becomes more and more a spiritual journal. Like Professor Muth, Sophie's clearly distressed and wrestling with bigger questions the more she hears about the war crimes Germany is committing in occupied territories. Her letters to Fritz petered out during this time, though she didn't entirely forget him. In her diary entry on December 12, 1941, she writes, quote, God grant that I come to love Fritz too in his name. Given the lack of letters to Fritz here and her earlier line about feeling fond of him in a different way, this makes me think that maybe Fritz had said he loves her and she just like wasn't ready for the same and they've maybe temporarily ended things. Like Sophie, Hans had come around to a religious conversion in 1941. By December 7th, he writes to Rose, quote, I'm experiencing Advent as a wholehearted Christian for the first time in my life, End quote. At Christmas, the Scholl siblings were all able to gather together for a skiing trip. A few friends accompanied them as well, and they ended up writing about it for Windlicht. Sophie apparently talked at length about spiritual hunger on the trip, because in letters in the new year, she's asked to expand upon it. Despite being one of the younger members of their friend group, she's starting to be looked at at this point as kind of a thought leader. She's certainly the wisest of their generation, or perhaps just the most well-spoken kind of among their group of friends. In early 1942 is the first clear indications of Hans using coded language in letters. He had long assumed that the Gestapo were monitoring their mail, and he writes to his letter he writes to his parents that quote, even the cold is a factor that brings us closer to spring, which was a veiled reference to how the German troops were not well supplied and dying in the winter weather. In the same letter, Hans encloses a poem from Goethe, which would later make its way into the very first White Rose publication. A month later, Robert Scholl, their father, was questioned by the Gestapo, and it's unclear why. Hans doubled down on his careful letter writing and covert messages afterward. In April 1942, Sophie was finally discharged from the labor service. She visited her family in Ulm, then, a month later, enrolled at the University of Munich, where she studied biology and philosophy. Hans, as I mentioned, was already studying there, and they soon started sharing a two-bedroom apartment. 
It's unclear if she'd already met Schmorl or Kristoff by this point, but they certainly became better friends now that they were all living together in Munich. Through this group in Munich, Sophie met several artists who questioned the Nazis and openly considered how to conform and live under a dictatorship while keeping their art practice and their ethics. Sophie began her studies with the summer semester and quickly befriended, befriended her philosophy professor, Kurt Huber. He taught her that, quote, all human beings had the ability to reason. He taught his students that everyone had the responsibility to exercise this ability to reason and to question everything. To me, it seems obvious that this was a veiled encouragement to question the Nazi regime. I think he was saying as much as he could without getting fired. Almost as soon as Sophie moved to Munich, Hans and Alexander Schmorl wrote and distributed the first White Rose leaflet calling for, quote, every individual conscious of his responsibility as a member of Christian and Western civilization to defend himself as best he can at this late hour, to work against the scourges of mankind, against fascism, and any similar system of totalitarianism, end quote. More and more frequently, the atrocities that the German military was committing were being leaked to the public, and later leaflets that Hans wrote would include the fact that since the invasion of Poland, 300,000 Polish Jews had been murdered. That summer, in very quick succession, Hans and Schmorl wrote four leaflets together in Schmorl's parents' home. The text argued with Hitler's philosophy, pulling from all manner and genre of writing, including the Bible and the philosopher Aristotle and Goethe, the famous German poet. Though the leaflets were aimed at the German intelligentsia, they were more determined to reach everyone, and the pamphlets had something for everyone. The leaflets were distributed widely but secretly, tucked into phone books and phone booths, slipped under windshield wipers on parked cars, and dropped off in the dead of night in hallways at other universities. Around this time, the group started calling themselves the White Rose formally. In an interrogation later, Hans gives this, um, the following reason for the name the White Rose. Quote, the name the White Rose was randomly chosen. I acted on the assumption that certain concrete concepts must be present in effective propaganda. The concepts would mean nothing in and of themselves, but would sound good and would give the impression that there was an agenda to the propaganda. It is possible that I chose the name on an emotional basis because at the time I was under the influence of Brentano's Spanish ballad, Di Rosa Blanca. There is no connection to the White Rose in English history. End quote. However, our friend Judd Duborn from earlier had more to say about this. There was a mysterious author who used the pseudonym B. Traven in Germany in the decades before Hitler's rise. If you recognize that name, it's possibly because the film The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, starring Humphrey Bogart, was based on a book by the same B. Traven. Um, now, Traven also wrote a book called The White Rose. It was published in Germany in 1929 and was eventually banned. However, Newborn believes that Hans would have gotten a hold of this novel at some point. The story follows this idealized hacienda in Mexico, La Rosa Blanca, which the patriarch of the hacienda refuses to sell to an exploitative American oil company, even though it would make him rich. He knows that, quote, his efforts against the U.S. imperialist juggernaut must fail, but he tries anyway. The closing words of the novel, spoiler alert, I guess, are, quote, We will have a country in which every single rose, white or red, shall have freedom to bloom, to be as beautiful as it was meant to be, and to flourish for as long as it was intended to flourish, end quote. This would have resonated deeply with Hans and Schmorl. So why not give that to the Nazis? Well, Newborn theorizes that Hans was trying to divert the Gestapo's attention away from a friend and White Rose member named Josef Songen, a bachelor bookseller who gave the White Rose group, quote, a meeting place and an endless supply of banned books. Hans knew that Songen was probably going to be questioned, so he tried to protect him as he had once tried to protect Rolf. 
Like I said at the top, this recent scholarship makes it so frustrating to me that Hans' story is told less than Sophie's. Like, they're both brave and wonderful people, of course, but Hans, man, like, oof. He always did his best to protect everyone around him. Anyway, there's some dispute about when Sophie became involved in the White Rose. Some say it wasn't until that fall, maybe like August or September 1942, but other evidence suggests that Sophie was involved from day one. She was, after all, friends with the boys, taking philosophy and deeply religious, so it makes sense that they would have included her from the start. Fritz quotes, remembers her asking him in May 1942 if he could get her a pass to buy a duplicating machine, which was impossible to get in Nazi Germany without a signed and countersigned form. End quote. This seems to be an indication that maybe she already knew about the leaflets and was trying to help. I can't imagine that it's a coincidence that Hans and Alexander started writing these leaflets basically the minute she shows up in Munich, you know? Now, while the core group of the White Rose is often remembered as quite small, mostly Hans, Sophie, Christoph, Professor Huber, Alexander, a few of their other friends, there were actually a lot of people helping out. For instance, the group was funded by Franz Eugene Griminger, who had fought in World War I and been a successful member of the government agricultural department before Hitler's rise. He had married a Jewish woman, Jenny Stern, in 1922, which later got him fired from his government position. This radicalized him against the Nazi government and led to his work with the White Rose. He gave money and supplies to the group with the help of his secretary, Tilly Hahn, who acted as their go-between. After his work with the White Rose was discovered, Griminger was sentenced to penal servitude. His wife was killed at Auschwitz. I'm not sure what became of Tilly. All that to say that the story is often presented as a group of young college students, but they actually had a lot of support. The group was united through a love of art and shared ethics, as well as a desire to end the Nazi regime. Otherwise, it was actually pretty religiously diverse, though not exactly racially diverse. Alexander Schmorl was an Orthodox Christian, Griminger followed Buddhist teachings while his wife was Jewish, Christoph Probst was baptized Catholic in 1942. Both of the Scholl siblings wrote in their letters and diaries about the work of various Christian scholars, including Augustine of Hippo's Confessions, Etienne Gilson, and sermons by John Henry Newman. Technically, they were raised Lutheran-ish, though like I mentioned earlier, their household wasn't particularly religious. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was a diverse group in, in some sense, and, and they, were, they were bound more by kind of a shared ethics than really anything else. Um, the fourth leaflet that they wrote ended, quote, We will not be silent. We are your bad conscience. The white rose will not leave you in peace. Ironically, however, Schmorl and Hans had to temporarily, temporarily stop writing when several members of the White Rose were called up to duty. Hans, Christoph Probst, Willy Graf, and Alexander Schmorl were all in the same student company and were called up to the Eastern Front. They left for Russia in July 1942. In the Soviet Union, um, they saw firsthand the war crimes that were being committed. What strikes me as strange is that in a letter to Professor Huber, Hans mentions that Quote, at night we mix with the Russians and drink schnapps with them and sing, but then during the days they were, like, fighting the war. Um, in a letter to his family, Hans also mentions, quote, I've also formed a choir here in camp from prisoners of war and a few Russian girls. Not long ago we danced half the night away, so energetically that our bones ached the next day. End quote. I mean, I understand the concept of, like, finding your joy where you can, but also, war is weird, man. In his diary, Hans wrote, quote, God is closest when home is farthest, hence the young person's desire to go forth, leaving everything behind, and wander aimlessly until he has snapped the last thread that held him captive, until he stands confronting God in the broad plain, naked and alone. 
he will then rediscover his native soul with eyes transfigured. End quote. For all that he was there fighting a war, Hans ru- found Russia to be really beautiful and he really loved the time he spent there. I think if he'd survived the war, he would have gone back. His diary is full of these poetic and ponderous thoughts while he's in Russia, like clearly something has hugely impacted him while he's there. In another entry in September, Hans wrote, quote, My pessimism gets worse every day. Skepticism is poisoning my soul. I want to save it by running away, but where to? In desperation, I erect a wall around me. It consists of sarcasm and satire, end quote. A few days before this, Ernst Rieden had been killed in action. Around the same time that Hans was deployed to the Eastern Front, their father Robert Scholl was arrested. He had been denounced by one of his employees for calling Hitler a, quote, divine scourge, and predicting that, quote, if he doesn't end the war soon, the Russians will be in Berlin two years from now. It's worth noting that Robert was only off by a year with this prediction. (laughs) At his trial on August 3rd, he was sentenced to four months imprisonment for treachery and was disbarred. He was imprisoned in Munich, and Sophie would go play the flute under the window of his cell late at night to keep his spirits up. That fall, she had also been conscripted, conscripted to work in a munitions factory, which she described as, quote, deadly, soulless work, contribution to a task whose entirety is beyond our ken and whose purpose appalls me, end quote. At the end of October 1942, both Hans and Robert were allowed to return home. Robert's prison sentence was cut a little short, though I'm not completely clear on why. Hans was allowed to return to school. He and all his friends had managed to survive their time in Russia. They arrived back in Munich on November 6th. Soon thereafter, the group resumed their activities writing leaflets as the White Rose. In January 1943, the fifth leaflet, titled Appeal to All Germans, was finished. They printed 8,000 copies and began distributing them widely. Copies are known to have appeared in Cologne, Vienna, and Berlin by the end of January. I'm imagining that the group split up to pass these out because a trip from Munich to Berlin would have taken quite a while at this point. The two cities are 504 kilometers, about 330 miles apart. With modern high-speed rail, it takes four hours to do this trip. In 1943, I can't imagine how long it would have taken between active war zones and like probable military checkpoints. I mean, this was happening around the first American bombing of Germany on January 27, 1943, so I'm betting tensions within Germany were high. In a letter to her friend Lisa Rempis, Sophie mentions a trip to Stuttgart that her family didn't know about. Perhaps it was to pass out leaflets. That fifth leaflet, appealed to all Germans, revealed the name of the White Rose Group publicly, though it also positioned itself as being from the Resistance, capital T, capital R. There's some evidence that members were starting to connect with other resistance groups in and out of Germany. The writing was less intellectual than the previous four and contained emotional appeals to people to stop listening to Hitler because the war was basically lost. This reflects the larger loss of German morale after the defeat of Stalingrad after over six months of fighting that had actually just been announced. Professor Huber authored the Six White Rose Leaflet, which was an appeal specifically to students in Munich. They called on students to stand against the government because it was clear that they were destroying Germany. A quote from the pamphlet reads, quote, The day of reckoning has come, the reckoning of our German youth with the most despicable tyranny ever endured by our nation. Students, the German people are looking to us. End quote. In January 1943, Hans and Schmorl began tagging buildings around Munich with graffiti saying stuff like, down with Hitler. They also apparently tagged buildings with the word freedom, um, with crossed out swastikas, and eventually, quote, Hitler, the mass murderer. On 1040, around 10.45am on the morning of Thursday, February 18th, 1943, 
Sophie and Hans arrived at the Munich University with a suitcase filled with leaflets. They decided to deposit the leaflets in hallways where they were sure to be found. However, they got a little carried away at the last second and, like a scene from a movie, Sophie dumped a bunch of the leaflets from an upper floor down into the entrance hall of the building, raining them down on the students. Well, some say the building was empty at this point, others say the building was full of students. Honestly, it's kind of a picturesque moment either way. Unfortunately, they were spotted by pro-Nazi janitor Jacob Schmidt, who locked the building's doors, trapping the two inside. He informed the Gestapo, and the two siblings were quickly arrested. Sophie managed to hide incriminating evidence in a classroom before she was captured, but in Hans' pocket was a handwritten draft of a seventh leaflet authored by Christoph Probst. Hans tried to rip it up and eat it, but was stopped before he could finish. The Gestapo got enough of it to realize what it was. The investigation, if it can even be called that, was quick. The Gestapo went to the apartment Hans and Sophie shared, where they rounded up all of their personal letters and found old drafts of at least one of the leaflets. They began interrogating Sophie and Hans separately. The two were interrogated until about four in the morning. Everything each one of them said was used against the other. Every personal letter was combed through and they were made to explain anything that the Gestapo had questions about. Sophie was interrogated twice and eventually admitted to writing leaflets with Hans. In her second interrogation, Sophie valiantly tries to minimize the contributions of everyone else in the White Rose in order to protect them. She only ever named Alexander Schmorl, saying, quote, Around June 1942, we took Alexander Schmorl into our confidence. We have been friends with him for a long time and believed that he would be receptive to these ideas. During the initial conversations with Schmorl, he raised various objections to our plans in that he pointed out that all of this would happen by itself and did not require our input. Schmorl did finally agree to help us realize our plans, but that is largely because he does not think soberly enough about political matters and is easily enthused. Following numerous long conversations on this topic between my brother and me, the decision to write, produce, and distribute leaflets in large quantities finally matured in December 1942. Schmorl knew about our firm plans around this time, but never actively participated. He was more of an observer and confidant." End quote. Sophie says that she and Hans weren't moved to do anything until the, after the German loss to Stalingrad because it, quote, moved us to undertake something in opposition to the, in our opinion, senseless shedding of blood, end quote. She claims they only wrote two leaflets instead of the six that we know that they actually wrote, going on seven, I guess. Obviously, we know in reality that they were working on things long before this. These lies are attempts to kind of protect everyone else. Sophie's final statement in her interrogation is really sweet. She's clearly trying to protect people to the last, and I'm, I'm just going to read it here. Um, quote, Finally, I would like to say that Mrs. Schmidt, our landlady, is favorably disposed to National Socialism and has no idea at all about our goings-on. As much as is possible, I request that you break the news of these events to Mrs. Schmidt and her daughter as gently as possible, especially since Mrs. Schmidt's daughter is with child and is about to be delivered. I would therefore ask that all agitation be avoided with these people. End quote. I think it's stuff like this, which is why Sophie is maybe a little better remembered than Hans. She was, to the very last second, always concerned about the well-being of other people, which is, I guess, kind of rare. Hans, on the other hand, was interrogated six times. It took until the sixth interrogation for him to admit that Schmorl had been helping him with early white rose leaflets. I imagine Schmorl's name came up with Hans because Sophie had already mentioned him anyway. Um, but other members of the White Rose still really weren't being named. Um, anyway, Hans says of, of his work with Schmorl, quote, 
We prepared the draft of the text while working together. I initiated this. Schmorl declared his willingness to work with me. I wrote the first leaflet. For the second leaflet, I wrote the first half. Schmorl wrote the second half. From where it begins, but not with regards to the Jewish question. For the third leaflet, I wrote the first half, down to the part that ends higher and higher. Schmorl wrote the rest. I wrote all the fourth leaflet. We did not draw upon any other sources for our comments. During his second interrogation, Hans claimed that they had taken empty suitcases to the university because Sophie was planning to travel home to pick up clean laundry from their parents, which is truly the most college student answer I've ever heard. Some things never change. Students will always take their laundry home, and the Scholl siblings were no exception. However, when asked about the leaflet that Schmidt had seen them throwing over the balustrade, Hans said, quote, I do not know if my sister threw this stack of leaflets. In any case, I did not observe who did. If she is indeed the person who did this, I would completely understand it. It's the sort of this is the this sort of practical joke is typical of her personality. End quote. He was also asked, It is well known that you have recently expressed the opinion to several different people that national socialism must be replaced by a Christian democracy. Is this true? Hans responded, Whether or not this is my deeply held view, I refuse to discuss it because such discussions are not currently matters of interest. Um, all of these interrogations can be read online, by the way. Um, he gave a lot of answers like this in the process, trying to resist as much as possible. But all of a sudden, like at the end of Hans's second interrogation, his statement suddenly reads, I am ready to tell the whole truth. And in a very long like monologue, he goes back on a lot of what he said previously. I mean, the record has to be incomplete. The last question he's asked before this is basically just like, really? That's not what your sister said? Are you sure you don't want to tell us the truth? And I don't believe that Hans, who had seen war crimes on the Eastern Front, who had helped lead this resistance group, could be so shaken by such a simple question that he would completely betray himself and all of his friends. Um, I suspect that there's some violence being, uh, that's being left out of the record. It's known that the Gestapo used quote-unquote intensified interrogation during these arrests, so I think we can assume that Hans was being tortured for this information. Even in this, though, Hans tried to take as much of the blame as he could. He claimed that they'd only authored two leaflets and that he'd written, produced, and distributed both alone. As for the draft found in his pocket, Hans said that he had, quote, suggested to Probst that he should put his thoughts about current writing, current events in writing for me. I must expressly note that I said nothing to Probst about using his written notes for producing leaflets. I similarly assumed that Probst was absolutely in the dark about the actions I had undertaken. So he tried to protect him in the rest of the White Rose as much as he could while also enduring torture. Hans's final statement in that record is, quote, When I first decided to produce and distribute leaflets, it was obvious to me that such conduct was in opposition to the current regime, and I was convinced that I must act on my inner convictions. I believed that this inner duty was greater than the oath that I had sworn as a soldier. I knew what I took upon myself, and I was prepared to lose my life by so doing. End quote. Unfortunately, Prost was tracked down and arrested on February 20th, 1943. The following Monday, February 22nd, 1943, their trial began. Despite being forbidden to enter the courtroom, members of the Scholl family managed to push past guards. Robert Scholl, their father, apparently managed to even speak to the presiding judge, Roland Friesler, who kicked him right back out. Robert was dragged from the room by guards, apparently screaming the whole way. Both Scholl siblings were found guilty of treason that same day. 
The verdict reads as follows, quote, In the name of the German people, in the criminal case against one Hans Fritz Scholl from Munich, born in Ingersheim on September 22, 1918, two Sophia Magdalena Scholl from Munich, born May 9, 1921, in Forstenberg, three Christoph Hermann Prost from Aldrons near Innsbruck, born November 6, 1990, in Murnau, Currently in interrogative custody with regards to the matter of traitorous aiding and abetting of the enemy, preparations for high treason, and demoralization of the armed forces. The first counsel of the People's Court, pursuant to the trial of February 22, 1943, have acknowledged as just that during a time of war, the accused used leaflets to call for sabotage of armaments and for the overthrow of the National Socialist way of life. They have propagated defeatist thinking and vilified the Fuhrer in a most vulgar manner, thereby aiding and abetting the enemies of the Reich and demoralizing our armed forces. They are therefore to be punished by death. They have forfeited their honor as citizens forever. After this verdict, Robert and Magdalena managed to visit their children in prison, mourning their death sentence. Both of their parents were devastated, but Sophie assured them that she and her brother were proud both of their anti-Nazi work and that they had managed to protect the rest of the White Rose group. Magdalena apparently said, quote, I'll never see you come through the door again, and Sophie replied, Oh mother, after all, it's only a few years more life I'll miss. Which, if true, if she really said that, that's pretty dark. It does sound like Sophie didn't really expect to live to the end of the war at this point. I mean, her journals had become increasingly fatalistic, so... Yeah. The siblings were held in Gestapo headquarters at the Wittelsbacher Palais of Munich. Sophie's cellmate was a communist resistance member named Else Gebel. They probably didn't have a lot of time to get to know each other, but Gebel would later remember Sophie saying something like this while she waited for her sentence to be carried out. Quote, How can we expect righteousness to prevail when there's hardly anyone willing to give himself up individually to a righteous cause? It is such a splendid sunny day, and I have to go. But how many have to die on the battlefield in these days? How many young, promising lives? What does my death matter if by our acts thousands are warned and alerted? Among the student body, there will certainly be a revolt. End quote. Meanwhile, Sophie's and Hans' brother Werner was in court, and he managed to see both of them with his parents. He apparently, quote, shook hands with them, tears filling his eyes. Hans said to him, stay strong, no compromises. Amazingly, the three were inspiring rebellion against the Nazi regime until the very end. Several guards were later quoted saying that they were so impressed by these three college kids that they risked letting them out of their cells so that they could say goodbye to each other. A guard was later recorded saying, quote, We wanted to let them have a cigarette together before the end. It was just a few minutes that they had, but I believe that it meant a great deal to them. Their execution was scheduled for 5 p.m. on February 22, 1943 at Stadelheim Prison in Munich. Present were a few government officials and the prison doctor. Johann Reichardt was their executioner, a man known for executing thousands of people in Germany. He would later say that he had never seen anyone walk to their death as bravely as Sophie Scholl did. Now, there's a detail in here that interests me, but it's a little dark, so if you want to skip ahead about two minutes, I won't blame you. Hitler often had supposed traitors to the regime beheaded by the guillotine. As you may know, guillotines were popularized during the French Revolution. They had existed for centuries before as like a supposedly more humane way of executing someone, but they are heavily associated with the reign of terror in our collective memories. This is interesting to me because death by guillotine was usually meant to be a spectacle. Beheadings of criminals and dissidents have often been an event to attend as much as they were a warning to others. But in Nazi Germany, they were done in private. When the three members of the White Rose were executed, they were behind closed doors so no one could see it. They weren't even present for each other's deaths. 
apparently Hitler was wary of using the guillotine at first, precisely because of its associations with the Reign of Terror. He knew that the spectacle of it would turn people against the party. According to the Daily Mail, in a newspaper archive in 1933, Hitler said, quote, At least we have not set up a guillotine. Even the worst elements have only needed to be separated from the nation. He's referring, of course, to concentration camps, which is no better, but that's, that's his point. A few years later, however, he would end up ordering several guillotines to be set up in cities across Germany for expediency. However, he had learned public executions, which might have scared people into compliance in the past, weren't going to work in the 20th century. He didn't dare invite criticism or make martyrs out of dissidents, especially not a 21-year-old girl and her brother and friend. According to Nazi records, quote, the guillotine was eventually used to execute some 16,500 people in between 1933 and 1945, many of them resistance fighters and political dissidents. That is just short of the estimated 17,000 people who died by guillotine during the French Revolution. Okay. On the scaffold facing the guillotine, Sophie's true final words are disputed. <laughs> they were either, quote, God, my refuge into eternity, or, quote, the sun still shines. Unfortunately, Fritz did not make it home in time to say goodbye to Sophie. He was in the hospital suffering injuries from frostbite at the time, and by the time he got news of her arrest, she'd already been executed. As for the rest of the White Grows group, well, in the end, nearly 30 people were accused of being members. 16 of them were executed, and 13 others were given prison sentences ranging from 6 months to 10 years, depending on their involvement. Among the people executed were Alexander Schmorl, Willie Graff, and Kurt Huber. Schmorl and Huber were executed on July 13, 1943. Graff was executed on October 12th. German lawyer Helmut James Graf von Moltke managed to smuggle the text of the sixth leaflet written by the White Rose out of Germany and into the UK. There, it was widely circulated and then eventually printed by the thousands. In July 1943, Allied planes dropped copies of it over all of Germany under the title The Manifesto of the Students of Munich. A lot of people wonder why there wasn't more resistance to the Nazis from within Germany. I think the question has come up a lot in the last several years in the US with questions about why Americans didn't do much about kids in cages, for instance. Richard Gilman, who wrote the foreword to the American edition of the collections of letters by Sophie and Hans that I've been reading from, he offered an interesting theory about why most resistance to the Nazi regime came from outside of Germany. He writes, To resist meant to turn against your own country, which wasn't true in France, say, or Holland or Norway. Surveillance was ferocious, most young people were away in the army or in heavily regimented war work, clandestine communications were immensely difficult. The White Rose members were exceptional, to be sure, but that isn't how they ought to live in our consciousness. Victims and transcenders of a monstrous era, they occupy an exemplary status, testifying to human possibility, to courage, grace, and self-sacrifice. End quote. Moreover, the people who did resist uh, often faced criticism by people who would have otherwise supported them. Some people think the students in the White Rose acted rashly and were too careless with their own lives and the lives of people around them. Detractors try to say that they didn't have much of an impact. Personally, I think that's really unfair. It's hard to quantify the whole process of like changing hearts and minds, and we can't know how their leaflets and graffiti impacted the people that saw them. Some do make a fair point that they didn't seem to have practiced for what to say if they were caught, which led to several arrests of their friends and family. Perhaps if they prepared, maybe fewer people would have been arrested and the White Rose could have continued on, but I mean, history what-ifs are, are both fun and a really unfair game to play, I think. 
If you're interested in learning more about the shoals or about the white rose, there is so much information out there. There's a book called Conscience Before Conformity by Paul Shrimpton that I couldn't get a hold of in time for this episode, but is supposed to be eminently readable. Importantly, it apparently includes some context about Hans' sexuality that most other accounts tend to ignore or gloss over, which is wild because the virulent anti-homosexuality stance of the Nazis had to have some kind of impact on Hans. It just had to. A review of that book mentions that, quote, Hans is depicted as a rebellious and daring activist who faced deep personal turmoil, likely in part due to his substance abuse and sexuality, end quote. This review of the book is the only place I've seen Hans doing drugs mentioned. So yeah, I, I think this book is probably an incredibly important resource if you can afford it. it just a warning, there's no ebook, it's a little expensive, but yeah. If you can get your hands on conscience before conformity and you're interested in learning more about this, I really, I really recommend you try. Additionally, on YouTube, you can find a dramatization of the last year or so of Sophie Scholl's life. It's called Sophie Scholl, The Final Days. It was made by a German film company, so it's in German, but there are a few versions out there with English captions if you can find them. And, well, that is the story of the Scholl siblings and some of the story of the White Rose. And that's a wrap on season one. I'll be back in September 2022 with season two. If you'll let me get sentimental here for a second, I just want to say that I really appreciate every single person who has listened and subscribed and commented. It means a lot that you all love the podcast. If you haven't yet, please tell at least one friend about the show and or leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It's actually genuinely, truly a huge help in terms of getting this work out there. You can also let me know your thoughts by following me on Twitter and Instagram as unrulyfigures. Thank you to everyone who has liked and subscribed to Unruly Figures. I'm told that this is where credits go, but Unruly Figures is researched, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, all by myself. So if you are into supporting independent artists, please share this with at least one person you know. If you're feeling really generous, rate this show and leave a review for Unruly Figures on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find this work. If you want to subscribe, you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Unruly Figures. Come hang out. If you want to see photos related to today's episode, come find this episode's transcript on Substack. It'll be full of photos. While there, you can also subscribe for ad-free episodes and behind-the-scenes content. That's all going to be at unrulyfigures.substack.com. That's U-N-R-U-L-Y-F-I-G-U-R-E-S dot S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. Until next time, stay unruly. Thank you.